Good evening and welcome to this Spirit and Life Bible study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is Jesus' verbal imagery. We're looking at Jesus' use of imagery and what we can tell from that about the way that he read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, so this, this should be some fun. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I want to make a couple of uh, announcements here at the beginning. One is that, as you may have heard me say before, on May 1st, Friday, May 1st, at 7.30 in the evening at the Mitchell Performing Arts Center in Bernathan, Pennsylvania, United States, there is a Totally Not Worth It concert, uh, which is a fundraiser for Bernathan College that I'll be playing at. It's going to be a very fun concert. Uh, we try to give you as little as possible in 55 minutes so that you get the full tax write-off for your donation. And... Uh, so that, that's, that's good fun. I hope you can come and attend. Tickets are available at bernathan.edu slash worth it or by calling 267-502-4895 during U.S. East Coast uh, business hours. I also wanted to mention, in case uh, I don't make this clear enough, that there is such a thing as a Spirit and Life Bible Study uh, website, www dot spirit and life bible study and is spelled out no dots in there but spirit and life bible study dot com and that has archived episodes it has the titles at least of i believe tonight is episode 220 and uh so it has video links and audio links and things there and it has a paypal donate button there and i wanted to let you know that i'm very very grateful for the donations that we've received. It's very touching and it helps us psychologically and spiritually and financially to, to keep going. So let me set this up a little bit. I'm just amazed when I think about what a widespread thing, you know, I think there's probably hundreds of millions, if not more, uh, Christians in this world who take the Bible very literally and uh, people call them Bible thumpers or, or whatever. Uh, and they, it means what it says, it says what it means, and so on. This is their whole approach to the text, and they call that Christianity, and it just amazes me because of all people ever to use human language, Jesus was surely the least little, literal person, the most full of imagery and parables. Without a parable, spake he not to them. Uh, this is just so out of keeping with who Jesus is and, and the nature of his message that it kind of amazes me. I hasten to say that I don't think the worst thing ever, you know, it's not up there with genocide or whatever, you know, uh, but it is, I, I think there's, it, it, it's not as transformative a view of the text as it is when you read it with deeper layers. Now, some people may confuse the fact that when you read it as having different layers of meaning, that that means uh, that you don't take it as seriously or you're sort of flip with it or it uh, you know, doesn't really matter what it says or something like that. Now, that's not true at all. When you see the way that Jesus took Scripture, it was the holiest thing. In a true sense, he gave his life for Scripture. He became the embodiment of Scripture. He, it, it directed his every step and his every move. So he took it very, very seriously. But uh, he took it in a very deep and transformative way. And he saw how multiple layers were talking to each other in the text. So that's what we will be exploring tonight. Um, and uh, I'd like you to join me in an opening prayer, if you will, friends. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into our world. How was it that the divine in you and the human in you became one? It's a miracle that we behold, Lord, and we thank you for recording it in the deepest recesses of your word. Thank you for opening your word to us. We pray for your presence among us this evening as we study, seeking your face in the pages of your word. Amen. Amen. Sending out love to all of you who are watching, uh, whether in the same thing that I think is this moment or some other moment, and sending love to people who are getting the audio, the podcast, and, and what have you, and even greeting those of you wonderful people who are here with us in the flesh tonight. It's always great to have you here. 
Um, here's, a, here's a thought. When you think about predictions in the Old Testament, there's a lot of predictions that when the Messiah comes, it's going to be violent. It's going to involve fire and death and destruction and starvation and, and all kinds of horrors. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus didn't take the Bible literally? Aren't you glad? Like when he came, you know, he, he wasn't running around with a, with, you know, with a, with a flamethrower or something, you know. Uh, he came into the world in a loving way. He showed us a loving way to read Scripture and how to take all those kind of prophecies. So it's amazing that, that just this juxtaposition, what's wrong with this picture? You read the Old Testament and then there's Jesus reading the Old Testament and what he gets out of it is very different when, uh, than what others sometimes get out of it. Let's go look at some imagery. We're going to be almost entirely in the New Testament, of course, and we'll, I just picked Matthew. Uh, let's start at Matthew chapter 4. Um, a, a lot of these phrases, I hasten to say, are so familiar to us that we don't think of them as imagery anymore. It's just like that's the obvious way to say it. But I want you to think about the concrete images that Jesus is using because actually they're not obvious ways of talking about things if you can look at it in that way. Look at verses 18 and 19 in Matthew 4. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, yeah, okay, it's not a huge stretch to that sort of expression, make you fishers of men, but it's, that's odd. That's not a, I mean, you don't call it that. I mean, that's not what you call it. That's, that's <laughs> imagery, right? Uh, he, he's using imagery when he says, oh, you're fishing for fish? Hey, how about fishing for people? You know? It both says that you'll be a fisher and other people will be fish, right? Doesn't it imply that? Uh, so it's, it's a non-literal kind of way of approaching it. Look at chapter 5. We get into that wonderful Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Let's look at 5, uh, just verse 6. We'll be rifling through. All these are very familiar, but just think about what he's saying here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst... For righteousness. Now, righteousness is not something you can eat, and it's not something you can drink. Uh, he's using imagery, and it's very concrete. I love how every day his imagery is. It's not something obscure like, oh, have you ever been to Africa and there's that weird tree that has that sap that, you know. No, it's just something everybody's experienced. He's talking about fishing, talking about hunger and thirst but after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What did he mean? They'll be filled. What does he mean? Isn't he trying to pull our minds out of this literal level to say, I want you to think about righteousness in a different way. Think about righteousness as food, you know, and you're blessed. Think about that as drink. You're blessed if that's what you want to consume, and you're blessed because you will be filled. What is that, you know, isn't he trying to pull our experience of eating and drinking up onto this higher level? Right? It's just really basic to what he does all the time. But I love that. Look at verses 13 and 14 down there. He's talking to the multitudes. You are the salt of the earth. Now, again, we're just so familiar with this phrase. Everybody says, oh, yeah, he's the salt of the earth or whatever. But <laughs> what a bizarre, I, I don't think many people up until that point had referred to people as salt. Do you? You know, I don't think people walked around. I have no knowledge of people walking around calling other people, oh, you're salt. Oh, well, you're pepper, you know. I mean, that's not the way people usually talked. Go on. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Yes. Now, you have people in this analogy that are doing the trampling, and yet people are also the salt that's being trampled. And he's talking about how salt loses its saltiness, and he makes this great point that if salt <laughs> is no longer salty, what are you going to salt it with? <laughs> you know, you, you, so, so stay, stay salty. And look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, again, isn't he trying to pull you up? It's just like, hey, don't, don't think about light. So he's calling people light? 
People aren't light. They, they don't have anything to do with it. People are nothing but darkness. You know, they, they don't radiate any light whatsoever. How can he say that people are light? And then he refers to them as a city that's set on a hill. And he doesn't make any connection between the two. He just says these two things, one after the other. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, okay. So he's trying to stretch our minds, right? And we're so familiar with this, but isn't it wonderful? Look at verse 29 down there. How many Christians take this literally? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Mm. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Hundreds of millions of literalist Christians, but I don't see too many one-eyed Christians. I, I just I wonder how far the literalism goes. Because I think people realize he's not talking about your physical eye. How can your physical eye cause you to sin? You know, isn't that what he said? Cast it from you rather than your whole body being cast into hell. Well, well, we know that your body doesn't get cut. He's talking about your mind rather than your body there. Your body dies and then your spirit goes off. So your body isn't cast into hell anyway. So again, he's stretching. And with this shocking language now, before it was you know, nice imagery and so on, but the idea of plucking your eye out is so shocking. And look at verse 30. You know what comes next. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and cast it from you, mm. for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So you just, like, how can you, it just forces you to think in a deeper way about it. You know, and this is, this is, we're only two chapters in, and he's doing it all the time. Look at chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? <laughs> That's kind of, kind of an odd statement. So the eye, the, the lamp of the body is the eye. Okay, now you can kind of see what he's talking about. But he says, if your eye is good, then your whole body will be full of light. Well, is that physically true? Uh, that's not physically true. No light. I mean, it just gets into your eye and then stops there. But everything else is in the dark, right? It's not like your whole body's full of light and you have light shooting out from under your fingernails or something. That's not how it works. And then he says, "What if your what is he? What's the language in the New King James?" But if your eye is bad, bad. Yes. Okay. Your whole in, body will be full of darkness. In the Old King James, if, if your eye is evil, <laughs> your whole body shall be full of darkness. And then what an amazing statement. So. If your eye is evil, then your body will be full of darkness. And if, what does he say? If therefore the light that is in you is darkness. Now see, I don't know. From my study of linguistics, you can't say light is darkness. You know, I think that's an illegal sentence. It doesn't make sense. But he says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's really bad darkness if your light is darkness. <laughs> so he's, you know, and we may be not sure what he means, but it's pretty clear what he's not talking about. I had a friend, as some of you may have heard me mention before, I had a student uh, years ago who did a study on this very passage and took it down to a whole bunch of people in downtown Philadelphia and just stopped them on the street and asked them, what do you think that means? It was very interesting that 18 of 20 people... Uh, went into this whole riff about, oh, it's talking about the way that you see the world, your filter, if you're in a bad state, you know, everything looks bad or people look ugly or whatever, but if you're in a good state, and, you know, and that had this whole thing. And two people said, it's about blind people. <laughs> and it was fascinating that the two people that said it's about blind people had nothing more to say. You know, if you're not blind, if I'm not blind, it's not about me. It's about blind people. You know, and that was all he said. I was fascinated by that. Whereas the people who took it in a non-literal way had this whole great interpretation about how the, you know, how you view the world, your filter, and the whole thing. And uh, so, uh, the Lord is just begging to be read in this deeper way. Let's look at chapter seven, verses one to five here. Another very familiar passage. Judge not, that you be not judged. 
For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Mm. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Well, clearly then the measure is not talking about, oh, you're this long or that long. I've been thinking all week about that thing, two weeks, about the one that came up in the anxiety Bible study a couple of weeks ago about the least thing you could do is to add a foot and a half to your height. Uh, that's so amazing to me. I, I don't know what, what the Lord meant by that, but that's so amazing. If by worrying, you know, if worrying could make you a foot and a half taller, knock yourself out. But if it won't even do that for you, I, there's something fascinating about that. So here he is talking about measurement, but it's right next to judgment, isn't it? Measurement and judgment. Well, we can see it. We can see that measurement is a type of the same way that you use a, a, a ruler or anything else to try to judge what something is. This is the same kind of judgment. But he's, he's not trying to drag our minds down to the physical. He's trying to pull it up to the spiritual. Go on. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? <laughs> or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Now, how many people have you seen walking around with a, like a, a two by 12 <laughs> in your eye? Uh, it's a very strange image, is it not? <laughs> uh, I didn't get it when I was younger because it yeah. in the old King James it used to say beam. So I didn't know what it, I just thought, oh, like that beam in your eye, like your eyes twinkling or something. No, he's talking about a load bearing hunk of wood. <laughs> you know, um, uh, why are you looking at the speck that's in your brother's eye and not considering the plank that's in your own eye? Go on. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, what does he mean by eye here? The eye has to do with the mind, right? Because the judgment, what are you using that you judge with? Isn't this all about judgment? That's what he just said, right? And so he's talking about our judgment, and what a magnificent picture of how our own, you know, our own issues get in the way and we're so busy running around. I love the way he frames it because it makes the neighbor's problems infinitesimally small <laughs> and, our, and we're just blind to this enormous great thing sticking right out of our face. And, uh, and so he gives us some nice advice. He encourages us to be care, caring of our neighbor. He just says, get that plank out of your own eye first and then you'll be able to see clearly. He's saying you can't see clearly because you haven't done enough work on yourself yet to be going after others. That's hypocritical. Get, and so he calls the listener a hypocrite, but everything he's saying is very loving. Like, I would, I would rather you got rid of that. Then you could really help people with their, their little speck, but maybe you'd have things in some perspective that, uh, you know, you, you've dealt with things that are worse than, than what they're going through instead of feeling like, oh, I'm fine, but here, let me help you with that little thing. I can see you have a problem there. Magnificent. Okay, how about verse 6? Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, a lot of these things, like that, that one right there, the one we just did about the eye, that you can understand. I mean, you, right? You can, you can see what he's talking about. But, but what is this holy? Who are the dogs? And don't cast your pearls before swine. Again, it's a phrase we've heard so much that it's just become part of the language. Uh, but when you think about what he's talking about, people are sitting there listening to him go, okay, yeah, the plank, that's good. And then the, but wait, what are the, what are the pearls and what are the pigs and what am I, uh, what am I not doing? And uh, be, because what will happen if you don't do it right is that they'll trample them under feet and then come after you. And there he doesn't say anything about it. In these other passages, he'll go on and give you a little sermon. But there he just says, boom. And then he goes right on to the, the next lesson and, and so on, which is a clearer thing to understand. But that's very much, in my experience, the way the Lord teaches, where he'll say something that's pretty accessible and then something that's so far out there. And then he'll just come right back and give you another. But he's just, wow, I love it when you can hear from the sound of the engine that even though it's just idling there in the parking lot, that thing is capable of 160 miles an hour. You know, I mean, you just know from the set. The, the Lord is just, every, so every so often he'll just send something right, right over the head and then come back down. Okay, here we are. I just wanted you to know, you know, there's a lot of horsepower there. Uh, 
Um, have a look at uh, verse 15 down below there. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. I wonder if this was hilarious to people at that time. Because the idea of sort of wearing a sheep suit or something, I don't know how much people did that at that time. But what an interesting idea that people look like sheep. And he could have expressed it so many different ways, but he says specifically about sheep and wolves. And then what's the very next thing that he says? Okay, so how can I tell if someone's, everybody looks like a sheep, you know, but how can I tell the wolf from the sheep? So he gives us some nice example about that. You will know them by their fruits. Oh, the sheep fruit and the wolf fruit. Are, <laughs> did we switch? Did I miss something? Okay, now we're talking about fruit. Okay, go on. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Mm. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Wow, what an amazing thing. So don't judge by the way people look or seem. Look at the output. What are they doing? What's the fruit? You know, and, and uh, what's the product? Go on. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Mm. Therefore, now, wait a minute. So, so, so people are sheep and wolves and trees, and they bear... <laughs> fruit. But if you're a thistle, you don't bear a fig. Is that what you're saying, Lord? <laughs> and uh, finish up with verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, isn't that just wonderful, wonderful, amazing teaching? But so people are sheep and they're, he's breaking all these categories and, and um, doing amazing things. And yet look at how he's in quite a gentle way, able to tell people that there's the threat of damnation if your actions are not good. But he just says it in kind of a third-party way. He says, every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is hewn down, cast into the fire. Um, uh, but he doesn't say, you know, you better watch out or you might go to hell. He, he just frames it here in this passage in this kind of a distant way in this analogy. Oh, look at uh, verse 24 right down there, going down to 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. Who so he says right up, I'm likening him. I'm taking this person who hears what I'm saying and does it, and I will liken him to what? To a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And this is just a minor point, but I like the fact that I noticed that, that in verse 24 there, the Lord does the likening. I will liken him to a wise man. But the Lord does not liken anybody to a foolish man. They just are likened to a few, you know, mm. that can be compared to a foolish man or something. The Lord does not do that uh, comparing. Uh, so what is the house? Beat on the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What's the house? The house must be the person, right? So people are sheep. People are wolves. They're thistles. They're figs their thorns, their grapes, and their houses, right? <laughs> All in like 10, 12 verses. That's what, that's what people are. Okay, good. And look at verses 28 and 29. I just love this. So this is the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. Yes. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Yes, so the air of authority was the most amazing thing to them. I wonder whether they were also astonished by the whole manner in which he did this teaching. So concrete, so practical, and yet such a sense of wisdom in there. Like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. What did he say? What did he say? Say that again? What was that? And, and uh, so for, for thousands of years, people have been studying that Sermon on the Mount and, uh, you know, 
milking it for wisdom. Let's turn over to chapter 9. Just picked out some passages that struck me about imagery. Let's start at uh, chapter 9, verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, so what is Jesus' response going to be? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Isn't that magnificent? Now, you know, we're, again, we're very used to this kind of expression, but that wasn't, wow, he just compared himself to a, a doctor and the people who need the doctor, people who don't need a doctor. And wow, how many religions, how, how much of religion gets tangled up in that idea of being the club of good people or something like that, you know? And you ostracize the bad people and stuff like that. And he just cuts through that whole thing in one sentence, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Those, those who are well don't need, don't need a doctor. You know, why are you, what are you, what are you doing? That judgment. It's like, what are you doing? You're sitting with those bad people. Well, you know, haven't you ever been to the doctor? What are you talking about? Like, uh, it's just magnificent. Love that teaching. Uh, look at 14, just down below there, to that 17. Okay. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Yes, I love it. Listen to his answer. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Wow. Okay. So he just turned, isn't that amazing? Like, what is his mind like? Because they just say something, and he immediately goes, oh, we're in a wedding. Are you with me? And, you know, I said, what? How do we get into a wedding? What, what's going on? And, it's, and, and everything's about how you relate to the bridegroom and what's going on, the guests and everything. It's just amazing. What is his mind like? And how did hundreds of millions of people come out of this teaching and say, it's absolutely literal? You know, I, I, don't, I don't get how that happened. Uh, and then what does he go on to say for an encore? No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Mm. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Boom. And he's done speaking. You know? That's his answer. <laughs> so wait. So... You know, why are we, so John's disciples say, why are we fasting? Why do the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples don't? They're just interested in this discrepancy of practice, very typical kind of question that comes up. But his answer, like, oh, well, let me explain to you. I, you know, it's not a straightforward answer. First, we're in a wedding, and all of a sudden, we're sewing on patches on our clothing. And, and if you look at that carefully and really ponder it, Look at verse 17 for existence. For, for example, um, now we often think about putting new wine in new wineskins and all that. But look, can you tell? He's worried about the old wineskins, right? He's worried both about the new wine and the old wineskins. If you put the new wine in an old wineskin, I'm afraid the old wineskin is going to break. He's concerned about that old form. You would think he's just coming into the world as a rebel. He's going to throw everything over and everything. But he's expressing concern. It's the same concern I hear in the, uh, that parable of the prodigal son, uh, where the prodigal son comes back, and then the father goes and deals with the brother who's upset. The brother is the existing church, and he's reaching out to them just as much as he's reaching out to the prodigal son. And here he's just as concerned about that old, those old wineskins, that they, they would break. I don't want the old wineskins to break. We need to get new forms to pour this new wine in, uh, and that way both are preserved. You see what I mean? 
So there's, 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 so there's this great depth, and yet they're absolutely concrete, simple examples. It, it, in at least the version of this passage in Luke, you can also see that he's concerned about the patch, like the patch will tear, but the old clothing will tear too. So you need cloth, the patch, and the clothing that it's patching need to be of the same age. Don't, don't mix those two things, you know? Man, the wisdom is unbelievable. Uh, oh, let's look at 9 verse 36 to the rest of the chapter there. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Yes, look at that. See, this is just the written text. It's not even his words, but it's comparing them to sheep that have no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Why not say something normal like, I'm feeling compassion for people? But he doesn't say that. He says, he starts talking about the harvest and the laborers. You know, just amazing the way that he thinks. Go on. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And just in one stroke, now we're so used to this that we really can't think of harvest in the same way. But I think to people at that time, it must have been so mind-boggling to have someone compare people to a harvest, you know, and that what you were doing was, was like farming, it was like agricultural work, even though it's, well, it's a similar sort of farming analogy, but a minute ago they were sheep having no shepherd, but now all of a sudden they're like standing grain or something and you don't have enough laborers to gather it all. Uh, okay, chapter 10, verse 6, when he sends out the disciples, what does he tell them to do? But go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, okay. Yeah, he goes to the lost... So these are his marching orders. Go to the lost sheep. Well, how, how will I know which one's a sheep and which one's lost? Uh, but that's what he says. You know, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is so entered our vocabulary. I wish we could go back and hear what the, the language of the time was before that. There was lots of um, sort of imagery in language and so on, but I think the way that he's using language has just changed everything. It's changed everything. Look at verse 16 down below there. This is the same speech where he's sending them out. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Yes, we focused on this a few weeks ago. It amazes me to think that he manages in the course of one verse to refer to sheep, wolves, serpents, and doves. And they're all people, right? All of those are people. They're, they're four different kinds of creatures and so on. Some are animals, snakes, birds, and everything. And yet... He says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be, um, that's right. As In the old King James, as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Mm. Okay, uh, let's go to 11, chapter 11, verse 15. There's a very common refrain. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what a strange thing to say. You know, like... If you're deaf, don't listen. Um, uh, what does he mean, ears to hear? It can't mean the literal thing that it obviously means. It just can't mean that because they just heard him. He just said it, you know, but that's not what he's talking about. He's trying to get us to look at the whole idea of ears and hearing in a different way. He's always trying to lift up to that higher level of that wisdom. It's just incredible. Okay, uh, a few more of these, good friends. Look at 11.29. Very, these are all so familiar, aren't they? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What yoke is that? He's not wearing a yoke. What's he talking about? But he talks about his yoke and that we should take his yoke on us. Oh, I want to read back, sorry, to verses 16 to 19. I, I just, I think about this all the time. Something so magnificent about this. But, do, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. So you see what he's saying? 
you have these children going, and this one group of children is trying to control the other group of children. So they're saying, hey, you know, wait, you know, we played a happy song, you didn't dance. We played a sad song, you didn't lament. Uh, and how does the Lord relate that to what's going on? For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Hmm. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, <laughs> a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Yes, so do you see what he, how, how does that relate to what he just said? Isn't it like saying that he, the way that he takes this negativity that's coming from people is that John faced this negativity because he was, he was fasting and all that, and they said he has a devil. Well, how does he read that? Well, he tells you how he reads that situation, that what they mean by he has a devil is he's not being the way I want him to be. I played a happy song. He's not happy, right? And then the Lord comes, and he is eating and drinking, and they're critical of him because they don't want him to be that way either. So isn't he framing it as a control issue? And yet, instead of using the clear language that our century has come up with of control issue, he speaks of children in the marketplace and that they're playing songs and, and they're upset. They can't figure out, why, why didn't you do what we wanted you to do? We were trying to control you with this music that we're putting out. An amazing um, way to, to express what people are doing, isn't it? Oh, look at uh, chapter 12. Let's read verses 22 to 29. There's just one point down here in verse 29, but the story is fun. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Just amazing wisdom. Like, so he's describing the whole world of good and e evil as kingdoms. And so he's using this wisdom about the way governments work in this world to apply it to the spiritual thing. Um, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Okay, so he's done several different arguments here. So he frames his argument first by saying that you can't be divided against, you know, it's not going to stand, that doesn't work. The argument, their argument being that, oh, well, you must be in league with the devil to kick those devils out because they don't like the idea that he's not evil you know so they think oh it's because he's evil that he's able to get those evil spirits out so he says oh no if if the you know if it was divided like that that would really be trouble and um and then uh he almost expresses concern for satan's kingdom that if satan casts out satan then uh oh that means his kingdom is divided against itself uh oh how, how's that going to work for Satan? That's not good. Is that good? That's not good. And then his next point is that if I'm casting them out by Beelzebub, who are your children or your sons? These were their, their uh, uh, disciples were casting out demons. And so, well, how do they do it? If, they, if, I, if I'm doing it in the name of Beelzebub, who are your people doing it for? Because you're doing the same thing, you know? Therefore, they shall be your judges. And then this wonderful if. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yes, isn't that powerful? It's just so great. And he doesn't, he doesn't say this is how it is. He just says if. Hmm, interesting. Let's explore this a little bit. If Satan casts out Satan, then there's trouble. Hmm, that's interesting. And what would that imply about your, your followers who are doing the same kind of things? But... If this is the Spirit of God, then the, then the kingdom of God is here. And then I wanted to read verse 29 there. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? 
and then he will plunder his house. What an amazing statement to help us understand what he was doing to evil spirits. Uh, if a strong man, and again, isn't the person the house, right? Mm-hmm. And isn't the strong man who lives in that house is the evil spirit? So what an amazing way to describe what's going on psychologically with people, that you have, an, you have a powerful evil spirit living in your house, and the only way to get him out is to tie him up, right? That's the only way to get him out. And so the Lord has tied him up, and that's how he's able to, to free it. So it's, it's wonderful teaching. Uh, you know, look at 1233. Very similar to other ones we had. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. Well, I have actually no control over my trees. I've tried, but I can't make them either good or not good. Go on. <laughs> or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Well, this definitely implies that we have some control, that we are trees, and we, have so, we are trees that have some control over our fruit. Mm. Does it not? Okay, how about 43 to 45? When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. My house? What's his house? Unclean The house is the person. The person, right. Okay, so houses houses and sheep and figs and various different things are, are people. So this house and trees and so on, they're they're all people. And so I'll go back to my house, okay? And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. What an amazing way to refer to the human mind, that you're a house, and it's like a house that's empty, but it's sort of been straightened out. But nobody's living in there. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. Mm. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Okay, okay, okay. And, uh, oh, in verses 46 to 50, we don't have to read the whole thing, but, but they tell him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. And he says, who's my brother? Who, who, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples and he says, behold, my mother and my brothers Whoever does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, that person is my brother and my sister and my mother. Uh, that's not normal sort of way to express things, but that's what he did. Now that's very familiar to us, but that's what he was doing. And then in chapter 13, look at verse 3. He spake many things unto them in parables. He says the parable of the sower. There's another parable, explanation, parable, 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 parable. All through 13 are parables. And I want to turn in a couple of different ways to chapter 15. And so, look at verse 10. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Hear and understand, okay? Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Mm, I love this next verse. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> I think he probably was aware of that. Do you realize they were upset? They were really offended by that, that thing that you said. All right, and then what does he say? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Now, wait a minute. I think of categories that human is human, Plant is different, animals different, birds and so on. But he's always mixing them up, houses and so on. What's his next thing he says? Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. Uh, A moment ago they were plants, but go on. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Now that kind of language, just you have to think about what the ditch is, don't you? Like the blind and the blind. Oh, uh uh-oh, what's the ditch? That sounds bad. Okay, verse 15. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. And look at his response to someone asking him to explain a parable. What does he say? Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? He seems amazed. You see, it's not just that Jesus speaks in this way, but he expects others to think in this way. And he's amazed when they don't. What do you mean? You know? Are you also without understanding? And then go on. 
Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Do I have to spell it all out for you? <laughs> but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And it's very nice that he just, he really does sort of let down the parable thing for a second and just explain, doesn't he? Uh, there's still imagery in there and so on, but he does, does explain. Uh, look at chapter 16, a favorite passage of some of you know of mine. Let's pick up at verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now this is a warning. Uh, you know, when you're issuing someone a warning, it's nice to be clear enough that they have the foggiest idea of what you're saying. But he says, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So how do they respond? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. You see it explained in verse 5 that they've forgotten to take bread with them. Mm. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, mm. why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Listen to this next phrase. Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Oh, all day, every day, he's been talking in this language. And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they go, oh, it's about the bread? You know? Mm. Okay, go on. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? I.e., do we have a bread problem around here? No, we don't have a bread problem. Go on. <laughs> Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? Do we have a bread problem? Is it possible... Is it even remotely possible that I'm talking about bread? <laughs> Go on. How is it do you, that, oh, sorry, how is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Now, I love the fact that he sticks to his guns. He still will not explain what he means by the leaven. But that question is really powerful. How is it? Is the Lord still asking Christianity this question? How is it that you don't understand what I mean? What went wrong here that I have expressed myself in spiritual ways in earthly language and you don't get it? So what is going on there? What, what, what strong man is living in your house that you haven't let get out of there, let me kick out so that you can understand what I'm talking about? How is it that you don't understand that I'm, I'm not talking about bread but he still sticks to his guns, but that you should beware of the leaven, work with me people, of the Pharisees <laughs> and the Sadducees. And what, are they, what does the text say then? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, it's been a breakthrough. It's been a good session, everyone. Thank you. Uh, so they finally got to the idea that he's talking about their teaching. Beware of the leaven. Now, isn't that interesting that he's making a point that that leaven, you know, what you add, that ingredient that you put in, uh, you've got to look out for that. Don't eat things that have that in it. And, and the disciples just, uh, oh, it must be because we forgot bread. And uh, they just don't, absolutely don't get it. Don't, how is it that you don't understand? Could you turn to the right, good friends? We'll come back to Matthew in a little bit. But look at Mark chapter 4. There's another powerful passage here. Look at verse 10. He, he's just explained, you see, early in Mark 4, there's the parable of the sower. Right? Mm -hmm. And again, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, look at verse 10. <laughs> Are you okay, dear reader? Sorry, sorry. I'm just swallowing troubles. All right. Okay, but when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Okay, they asked him about, he said this parable of the sower. Okay, a sower went out to sow, and then the seeds fell here and there, and, and so on and so forth. They say, well, wait, what, what's, what, what about that parable? And, uh, and look at what he says in verse 13. 
And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? If you don't get this really cinchy one about the sower, woohoo! How are you going to understand all the, you know, there's a lot of parables. If you're stuck on this one, whoa, oh, you know? So is he expecting people to read him literally? Is that what he's expecting? Is he, is he expecting his disciples to just take him at face value? There's nothing deeper, nothing to see here, people. There's nothing beyond the message. No, he's expecting them to follow with him and to understand. And he actually seems to chide them about not understanding. So they say, hey, could you explain that parable to us? He goes, wow, you didn't understand that parable? How are you going to understand all the parables? You know? Because basically, as it says in, in Matthew 13, without a parable, spake he not unto them. He's always speaking, you know, if you're not getting the parables, you're really not getting me, you know, because this is kind of what I do in case you haven't noticed, you know, only much nicer than that with divine love and everything. But... Um, Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. Um, I just want to read these passages. We've read them before in Bible study. There's only two, like six of these I want to read. But uh, look at what he says in 12 verse 3. Okay, let's read. Uh, let's start at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Yep. Good literalists, right? <laughs> and uh, what do we have in verse 3? How does he respond to but this he, literal response to them? But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? Yeah. How he haven't, haven't you read that story about David? He went in, he ate this. Haven't you read that? You know, he seems kind of amazed that they have read with so little comprehension. See, this is also about the text of the Old Testament. Really, you, di you didn't... Haven't you, haven't you read that? He seems amazed. Look at verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Haven't, don't, don't, aren't, you, aren't you guys the big law expert? Don't you read this stuff? You know? He seems amazed. Uh, look at 19. Matthew 19. Verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And this is kind of amazing because, like, the law is like that. Th that's, that's their stock and trade. Like, that's what they're experts at. You know, they are the best. They know it back to front. They've got it memorized and everything. So they come and ask him some question about the law. And what does he say to them in verse 4? He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Are you unaware of Genesis? Like you didn't even read the beginning of the book or something? You know, haven't you even read that? That's right in Genesis. Haven't you read that? Um, just amazing. Have a look at 21. Verse 16. Oh, let's look at 15. But when the this chief, is the triumphal entry. But when the chief priests, the scribes, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, <laughs> they were indignant. You look at that. That's kind of fun when you think about those groups of children trying to get each other to behave in a certain way. You know, there's all this incredible rejoicing, this amazing triumphal entry of the Lord. And they're really mad about it. Yes. And said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Are you here? You know, I think to them it must be blasphemy because they're reciting these scriptures about Hosanna in the highest and everything. You know, like this is blasphemy. It's, you know, are you, are you listening to this? They say to him. And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read <laughs> out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Yeah. Haven't you read the Psalms? You guys, you're supposed to be all about reading and everything. Haven't you read that? And look at verse uh, 42, 41. Oh, he tells this parable of the vineyard and so on. 
And then at the end of all that, in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Yeah, it's just like, what were you thinking when you read all that? You know, this is basic stuff. Genesis, the Psalms, it's not, it's not you know, didn't you get it? And look at chapter 22, verse, uh, yeah, the, the people come to him about the life after death. They don't believe in the life after death. And they have this crazy story about the person with the, you know, this woman with seven husbands and all that stuff. And they ask whose wife, you know, it's one of these sort of uh, really sort of imbecilic questions. And, uh, and so they ask, whose wife will she be of the seven? Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. <laughs> so they ask a question and his answer is, you are mistaken. <laughs> I like that. He, he's not even going to answer the question right away. He says, you're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't know either of them. Isn't that interesting? I hadn't thought about that before, but that fits well with tonight. There's the scriptures and there's the power of God, right? And those things go together. And you don't know either of those, he says to them. And uh, look at what he says in verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What? Do you say that again? Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Wow. Scripture is speaking to us from God. Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not God of the dead, but of the living. And what's that reaction in verse 33 again? And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Yes, astonishing teaching. It's so awesome. Just really, really great, great teaching. So my purpose this evening, friends, is to just, it's just a little, we just dipped our little toe in there. Not even our big toe, just a little toe in there to see that Jesus' words are absolutely full of imagery. And it's purposeful imagery. It's not just sort of colorful and poetic, but it's trying to tell you something about the human mind, about who we are, how we interact with each other, who the Lord is, the power he has over hell, and so on. These are the kind of things that he's trying to tell us. And not only does he, not only was he uh, reading the Old Testament and all of nature, in this profound way, thinking about kingdoms, thinking about shepherds and what people do and money and hiring and all these kind of things that he has in his parables. But he very clearly expects all of his followers to do the same. There's no, there's no, I don't see any room in there for like, oh, it's fine for you to not get what I'm saying about bread. He actually has to ask the question, how is it that you don't understand? What, what failed here that you can't get your mind up above that level to, to only think that when I use the word leaven, it has to be about physical bread because I couldn't possibly mean anything other than physical bread. You've got to work with me here because I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to lift you up to a higher level. So he expects us to read in this deeper way too because it's transformative. And uh, I just want to close with a thought. I don't know if this will make sense to you, friends. Do you ever have a situation where you read a book and you just think, oh, so-and-so would love this? Like, they would love that book. Isn't it the case that books, certain books and certain readers are kind of made for each other and other books are like, ah, it didn't really do much for me. You know, like, you, you want a good match between the book and the reader, and when you find a good match, it's just something so delicious that happens when you find a book that's just like, wow, this is like fastball across the plate. I, I love this. It's like every word. I just couldn't put it down. It's so excellent. Uh, books need readers. And getting that book and the reader together, something happens. Uh, something happens there in, in the mind of the reader when there's a good match there. I want to submit to you in closing that the greatest pairing, the greatest pairing of a book with a reader that ever happened was Jesus sitting down with the Old Testament. The much denigrated, 
the much misunderstood, the much ballyhooed, horrifying Old Testament. The greatest thing that ever happened between a reader and a book was Jesus sitting down with that Old Testament. That book was made for him. He was made for it. And where he went with that, wow. People read it. They say, no, there's an angry God in there. That's not what he saw. They said, oh, it's all about fire and brimstone. Not what he saw. That just brought him to life. It just transformed him. It opened up his mind, gave him all these vessels that got full, just like those vessels in the Old Testament prophets they talk about. Get as many vessels as you can. And they filled them all up with oil. It's a miracle. He got all these vessels for the divine love, one thing after another, divine truth and divine love, and, and just filled his mind. It was so transformative that after being steeped in Scripture from the time that he was a child, when he comes out in his ministry, this is the way he talks. Someone comes up to him and says something, and boom, he goes right into, it's right into doves and serpents. And it's, you know, he's just living inside it. He lives in those multiple levels. It's so rich and so beautiful. So it's not that I'm condemning literalism as if it's the most terrible thing on the face of the earth. It, it, there's lots of things worse than that. But what's a sad thing about it, uh, there's a difference between... Uh, Viewing the scripture literally, which we all inevitably do as we start to read, but holding an open mind, saying, I'm not sure what this means. He said something about eunuchs and blah, blah, blah. I don't know what he means, but I'm going to keep an open mind because I know that what he was saying was something important. And I'm not sure I'm getting it. That's different than somebody who becomes adamant about the literal thing and adamantly will tell you, oh, no, God is a hater. God is a destroyer. If you get so wedded to that thought, you won't be able to handle the God of love that you find after you die. Uh, you, there won't be a place in you for that. So it's destructive if you become adamant about it. And when you think about it, think about the Internet. Uh, the, the worst, is it not true? Doesn't everybody not experience this? The worst, what they call trolls, are these literalist Christians, aren't they? Aren't they the most horrible people online? Isn't that widely recognized? Uh, you know, the atheists sometimes come in as a close second, and I'm not saying all literal Christians are that way, but, you know, there's some failure in that reading if what you're doing is spending all day and all night going around bashing other people over the head online uh, because you're so certain they're doing what's right. How is it that you're not understanding what Jesus said about children trying to control each other in the marketplace? You know, what happened to freedom? What happened? Just leave people alone. Let, let, them, let them follow God in their way. Uh, so literalism falls short, and, it, and, the, and the worst thing is that, that uh, people don't, aren't transformed. It's not a transformative approach to the text. What's transformative is when you realize, whoa, I am, this mind, this person that I am, there's something of sheep, there's something of wolves, there's thorns and thistles, there's a house, you know, there's, there's water and fruit and a tree and, and uh, all these things apply to me. So I can take these very concrete lessons and understand something about the way that my mind works. And the one that's going to stay with me from tonight is that idea of the strong man in the house. What a picture. What a picture to think we're not, we're not the homeowner, we're the house. And somebody else is living in us. Let's work to the point. Let's, let's allow the Lord to kick the strong man out of the house. You've got to tie him up and drag him out of there so the Lord can live in our house. Uh, that's the condition the Lord wants to bring us into. And he wants to bring us into a condition where we're reading in this deep and fluid way that he does. I, just, I am in awe of that divine love and that divine wisdom that you see in those words, so amazing. And it happens in real time. Someone walks up, says something, boom, the next thing out of his mouth is just like, wow, what was that? That was, that was something different. Uh, he is not a literalist. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord God, for your spirit, for that spirit of God that casts out the evil.
only when we are ready to say, we don't want this anymore, Lord God. Tie it up and take it out of us, Lord Jesus. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives and how you're using us to bless each other. We thank you for coming into this world, and we thank you especially for coming again. Please teach us how we can help you in that coming, and thank you for your word that shows us the way. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, on general principle. Ha, ha, ha.